as we learn more and more about important differentiating characteristics that aren't problems. Maybe we also need to be thinking a lot about the terms that we're putting on the screen because of what that means. And of course, when you're sending a patient an after visit summary and there's a section that's called the problem list, how are they <laughs> interpreting it? That's something I'm gonna have to look into a little bit. So yeah, some, uh, I would say it's something to ask uh, Trent because as we're thinking about the 21st Century Cures Act, the patients are starting to see these data um, in a more live format, uh, real time. And what, a, you know, I can't imagine being that patient opening up my health portal and seeing that, you know, my provider put transsexual under their problem list. Right. Uh, man, what a, I, I don't know, a discrimination lawsuit would be sitting right there waiting for you. Mean, you mean I should take out colored from the description I use of myself you know, in the problem I, list? I've thought about it. I mean, you might want to think about it just good, maybe in a week you. or two yeah i will jesse's crack for those of you who can't see jesse's cracking up right now his teeth are hello and welcome to informatics in the round a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, physician and informatics researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, at KBJohnsonMD on Twitter, and www.kevinbjohnsonmd.net on the web. In this episode of Informatics in the Round, we have a small but mighty team. Sarah Bland, a leader in Vanderbilt's Center for Precision Medicine is here, and funny as always. We're also happy to introduce you to Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld, who is the Senior Associate Dean and Director of the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment and Professor of Anesthesiology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. But wait, there's more. Jesse also was Chair of the American Medical Association Board of Trustees, a commander in the U.S. Navy and a combat veteran, and the head of perioperative informatics at Vanderbilt before leaving for Wisconsin, and so much more. All of the guests today have one or more non-heteronormative characteristics on our problem list. Huh? Okay, we're all in the Soji Remarkable group. Hmm. We're all in the LGBTQ plus tribe. Okay, we're gay. And we're going to talk about that today. And we're going to talk about the issues that relate to getting LGBTQ plus data in the EHR. In case you're wondering how we can fill 50 minutes on that topic, suffice it to say that we had more than enough material. I actually had to cut a bit. By the way, did I mention that Jesse also was the former director of the Vanderbilt Program for LGBTQ Health, that he's been a staunch supporter of LGBTQ plus rights, and has been at the center of much of the knowledge now published about the unique health requirements of patients who identify as LGBTQ+. Oh, and then there's his book, Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Healthcare, colon, A Clinical Guide to Preventive, Primary, and Specialist Care. Oh, and then there's his movie, Transmilitary, that showed at South by Southwest, among other places. So we've got an all-star cast who is going to, I think, teach a lot of us about the issues that are unique, or maybe not so unique, to the LGBTQ plus issues in the electronic health record. 
let's go ahead and get started. And you should know part of Jesse's history was that he was the instrumental person setting up the trans clinic here at, at there at Vanderbilt. So he yeah. was particularly and has a wonderful, wonderful documentary called Transmilitary. Transmilitary. Yeah. yeah, which you should oh, see. Yeah. It's really great. Absolutely. He's done a lot of stuff. Okay, why don't we get started? Um, yeah. This is this is actually really a treat for me because um, every so often we get this kind of trifecta where there's a topic that we can represent multiple layers. Um, so let me go ahead and welcome everybody to Informatics in the Round. And uh, today we have uh, the well-known and occasionally irreverent, but mostly just practically funny, Sarah Bland. Sarah, do you want to say hello? Hey, Sarah Bland, uh, Center for Precision Medicine and I work in uh, Department of Biomedical Informatics as a project manager. Thank you. And then special guest, Jesse Ehrenfeld, who normally would need no introduction because he is like the grand poobah known by the, his titles at the AMA, et cetera, et cetera. But Jesse, who are you? Uh, Jesse Ehrenfeld. I'm a physician anesthesiologist. I'm also a senior associate dean and director of the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Is it another one of those the places like the Ohio State University? Sometimes. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, for, the, for the people who are listening, I have to tell you, the fact that we're able to get Jesse on a podcast is almost newsworthy. This has been, a, he is a tour de force. It's been a Herculean effort and uh, looking forward to talking today. So we, uh, normally we would have a musician. Sarah had graciously promised that she was going to sing something, but she's informed me that that's probably not the best, this is probably not the best time to do that. So what I'm going to do is put you on the spot, Sarah, yeah. and, and ask you, do you have anything on YouTube? Uh, man, you know what? Um, there is something from like 2009, but uh, I'll have to dig it up to see if it's still there. I'll tell you what, let me know. And I'm going to make sure I stick it in here so that everybody right. else can hear. But, but what's it, what, is, what it is exactly? Is it, is, is it a Christian piece or what is it? It is actually, it was, um, it was some piece that, uh, that I wrote when uh, I was working for a church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, so I'll have to dig it back up. It, it was a song I think called uh, build us up. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that song would have been perfect for us to play. I may yeah. have to stick it in right here. All right. And then you, we can all talk about, hey, why don't you guys just do me a favor? I'll edit this in. I'll stick it in. And then I'll say, I'm just going to make this whole thing up. So Jesse, go with me. Okay. All right. Sarah, thank you. That was a great, that's a really great song and incredibly appropriate for, for today. Um, you know, the key, what, what would you say like your key message is in that song? I think that uh, a lot of us forget um, all of the different uh, gifts and talents that we have. And sometimes that we forget who we are, um, you know, and so sometimes we just need those reminders, uh, external reminders, um, reminders by uh, your spiritual um, journey or reminders by family and friendship uh, and reminders by community. Are you still, do you still consider yourself a Christian? No, not really. Um, I would say I'm spiritual. Uh, I believe that there are elements uh, of spirituality that are always in us. Um, and I don't have any answers, but uh, I wouldn't say Christian at this point. And is that because of your LGBTQ plus status? A lot of it, yes. Um, but also, uh, I was uh, really into fundamentalist uh, Christianity that um, you're seeing a high amount of people um, leave and, and deconstruct from. 
Um, yeah. It was very cult-like uh, in many ways. And so uh, I think part of it was the LGBT and it, it really affected a lot of my, um, my sexuality and also my understanding of just my health in general um, and who I was as a person. But uh, also I just think that there's a lot of um, issues within especially American evangelical Christianity. Yeah. So. Jesse, if I can ask, how about you? You know, I would consider myself to be um, uh, a moderately religious person. Um, a lot of it's driven by culture. We're Jewish. We keep kosher at home. Um, we take our son to synagogue. It's been a little bit hard with COVID and everything else going on. But um, a big piece of that has been finding community um, that's been supportive and, and welcoming of my, my husband and I. Um, but that did require some searching um, because there certainly uh, were places that we looked that didn't find um, that we didn't find to be inclusive. Well, thank you. And thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm in very much the same camp. I was raised a Baptist. Uh, like a lot of people, once I realized that I was gay, I was hearing in sermons things that made me very confused. And when I got, when I finally came out, one of my really good friends, a guy named Larry Gilmet, was said to me one time, how can you, who have actually seen what certain families do to their children who figure out that they are gay, be comfortable going to church and acting like it's just okay to hear these things and not wanting to stand up and help the 10 to 15% of the people in the room be counted on? you know, be counted and said, look, you're not, what you're saying hits, affects me. And it really got to me. So I started going to the Unitarian Universalist Church. Um, I'm trying to find a good church here in Philadelphia, but like you guys, I, I want to find a welcoming community that as especially you age and things happen and th that are going to be supportive of Rob and me um, and, you know, et cetera. When I was uh, raising my daughter, we routinely went to the Presbyterian church, which I thought was the most tolerant church in Franklin, um, which was wonderful. And they were very welcoming, et cetera. So I think those opportunities are out there, but a lot of people I know who are LGBTQ plus feel very much like the church has abandoned them and therefore they abandoned the church, even mm -hmm. Jewish and otherwise. Kevin, I, I've never been there, but um, I did watch the Queer Eye episode with Pastor Noah um, at Atonement Church in Philly, and it might be worth checking out. I don't remember. Oh, I do remember. Was that Queer Eye or was that We're Here? No, that was Queer Eye. Queer Eye. Yeah, because you heard about what happened to the pastor on We're Here, who was, uh, We're Here is a show about uh, drag queens. It's on HBO Max, and they go to small towns that are very backwards, and they give people a chance to come out to the community, meaning they're out and they're gay, but they're not wearing drag. They have them wear drag as a part of expressing who they are, but they also have allies. And at one of the, one of the um, episodes, there was a, a guy whose name I'm not gonna remember here, who was an ally and who was a minister. And not too long after that episode aired, he was asked to step down. So, well, this is a great segue because the topic I thought we should talk about today is something that Jesse has been talking with me about for really at least eight years. And I thought it would be useful for us to kind of introduce the history of that topic and then talk about where we are, because this is now something that's turning out to be incredibly important in informatics, where we have secondary data and we're trying to use those secondary data to do very interesting things in the clinical decision support and sub phenotyping space. 
And Sarah is right in the middle of that because of the work she does with precision medicine and all of us, et cetera. So the topic is representing LGBTQ plus status in the EHR. And Jesse, I can remember when you and I first started talking about this and, and me saying, I guess it's an important topic, but I'm not completely sure most people need to let people know. Talk us, talk me through kind of your evolution on this topic. Yeah, well, let me start by saying this is an uncomfortable topic for most clinicians. Um, it's a hard topic to talk about with patients um, for lots of reasons. Sex is taboo. Um, asking about people's behaviors um, is difficult. And so even though uh, we know that we ought to be asking these things, we often don't. Um, and so as background, when we think about nuanced concepts, um, things like the difference between sex and gender and gender identity and gender fluidity, um, concepts that aren't in most curricula at medical schools, um, it becomes challenging when you think about what's the informatics infrastructure, what are the policy decisions that need to be made to support ultimately what is our goal, which is to keep our patients healthy. You know, right. When I, when I started, you know, my work in this space around how do we collect data around sexual orientation and gender identity, um, there were no standards, there were no best practices. Um, there were these ideas that we could better support patients if we knew these information, um, but we didn't know exactly what those implications were. Um, that has changed markedly in the last 10 years um, because of a lot of work, um, some of which a very small piece of which I've been involved in, but by lots of groups around the country and around the world um, about how, how collecting these data um, in systematic ways actually improves patients' lives, improves their outcomes, improves the relationship we have with patients. And then obviously there's the critical issue around how does informatics infrastructure um, support all of that work. And Jesse, I know you're being modest. Um, Sarah, you may not know, Jesse actually has the book about this called Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Healthcare which was um, really informed the National Academy of Medicine's reports that came out on the similar topic. So um, I learned a lot from Jesse because I didn't appreciate it. I mean, just to be very direct, I felt as if for some people who were completely, you know, single and gay, that while there might be a reason to let people know, it may not be a high priority issue. And I was also aware of the fact that when Vanderbilt tried to bring in meaningful use questions around smoking cessation, that we had unbelievably difficult times getting the registrars to be comfortable asking those questions. And when we decided to ask the question about race, we essentially had to stop. It was such a difficult topic. People kept asking questions about, does race change? How often do we have to ask this? Um, how do we, you know, if I see somebody who's Hispanic, can I just say they're Hispanic? Why do I have to say they're black? Or I mean, just all of these topics that you realize there's so much training that I imagined when we started getting into the LGBT space, that this was going to be a bridge too far for a lot of communities. And in fact, I believe it's still not turned on in lots of, lots of organizations that have it built into their EHR. Do you know, Jesse, about, do you know much about how prevalent the asking of the questions is these days? 
You know, I, I, I don't. Um, I know it's markedly changed because of a number of issues. One, requirements driven by meaningful use, and now what's in USCDI um, has made it easier. And because um, all of the major um, vendors now provide the infrastructure support, um, but there is growing recognition that a lot of clinical decision support is wrong if you don't actually have these data. Um, and you know, insurance denials um, are higher um, if you don't collect these data. Um, clinicians don't have the decision support that they can most effectively benefit their patients from if you don't have these data. So uh, because of those things happening, uh, a growing number of centers um, collect these things. I, I will tell you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a parent, I've got a two and a half year old. Um, I called the pediatrician's office uh, to set up his first appointment after he got discharged from the hospital. Um, and they asked me um, his name, um, what he went by, his pronouns, and his gender identity. Um, this is for my newborn wow. child. And clearly, you know, the health system had decided to systematize um, those data um, as a normal routine part of, of what they do. Um, but not every place is obviously like that. Right. Yeah, that's a very uh, stark difference from a lot of places, especially uh, I would say the non-academic medical centers, um, you know, or, and certainly rural health areas. Um, uh, Vanderbilt's pretty progressive, um, I would say, in, in a long list. But I, I mean, I've even reached some stigma. Um, one of my, uh, I went to a GYN visit. And so when I put my contact information, you know, our, the nurse came in just to review everything. She saw my wife's name um, as my emergency contact. And she said, now, is this your sister? And uh, I said, no, it's my wife. And she said, uh, oh, you're one of those. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Wow. <laughs> and I, I could tell she didn't mean it to be like mean, but she also didn't know to keep her mouth shut. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> not, that's not a microaggression or anything. <laughs> no, that was just that was super awkward. Uh, but it's, it's definitely made my uh, visits there, my annual visits, a little awkward since she has said that because uh, I'm always waiting to see like what's her next little uh, comment about my emergency contact information. However, um, uh, I have gone to the LGBT, uh, LGBT clinic, the trans clinic, and has had a great experience where they did exactly as you just said. Um, you know, so I, I think what you said earlier, Kevin, that it has to be a system wide, you know, with education for all of the, the staff and everything has to happen for it to really take place. I, I think, you know, there's, there's been a, there's been a gap. I mean, patients don't often understand why it matters, yeah. um, why, why they need to come out. Um, it turns out, you know, there are different preventive screenings that we recommend, right? You know, vaccination schedules are different um, based on SOGI status. Um, but most patients don't understand that, you know, we, we will offer PrEP um, based on SOGI status um, in different contexts to patients that we otherwise wouldn't. So, so actually the care is different um, and, and that has changed, um, right, in markedly over the last decade. Um, but then, you know, clinicians often um, are reluctant to ask. They, they feel like they're going to offend patients. They're going to, uh, grandma's going to run out the door screaming if, if, if they get asked about, you know, uh, sexual orientation or something like that. It turns out, you know, there's good data on this. Patients actually don't, don't mind. The vast, vast majority of patients um, really don't care. They understand that in a, in a clinical context, you know, information is private, it's protected by HIPAA, it's for their um, benefit um, and are willing to provide those, uh, those data points. Well, that's really helpful. 
You said you said something that I guess I want to ask about before I dig a little bit into the data that's in the EHR. You know, in the genetics world, we talk a lot about genetic exceptionalism or genomic exceptionalism. And the idea there is that there may be something unique about the data in genomics or genetics that deserves a different level of treatment about a lot of things, typically LC, you know, ethical, legal, and, and social implications, but others the issues as well. I'm wondering when you said the, the statement you made about PrEP, whether given the prevalence of especially men who have sex with men uh, from a health equity perspective who don't identify as gay, but probably should also be counseled about PrEP, is this information that could in some way be discriminating against people who are uncomfortable with their sexual identity or their, at least their sexual practices? And how should we address that issue? It's a great question. I mean, I, I think it's a both and in terms of who gets offered that particular um, preventive strategy. Um, and you don't get it the entire picture if you don't ask about sexual behaviors as well as sexual orientation uh, and how people identify. And that's that's where, again, I think we, we struggle. Um, you know, it's just as bad, I think, in my mind, uh, in a primary care context, um, to skip, you know, asking either, uh, right? You need to ask about, you know, how do you identify um, and also what are you doing uh, if you're going to understand the patient in front of you and give them the care that they need? That's a really good point. I think it's also uh, something to consider for people who um, are sex workers or or engage with sex workers uh, frequently and, and maybe have a stigma around that too. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about what you were saying earlier and that some people don't think that maybe identifying those things are important, but uh, I think they are because even in what I do, so I work with a lot of research data, those values are underrepresented to the point where we'll just toss out things. Like um, I have a lot of, I have a, a research cohort right now that I've worked with that um, we have several places where gender and sex are not identified. We have a couple of blanks or unknowns and we're just tossing them out. What if it's that they didn't want to identify what they were? And so we've lost that data now. Um, so I just think about how, you know, you have to include them because we're losing a number of those um, people in our research data. You know, and and you, you mentioned the concept of stigma, um, which is really important because, you know, how you treat these data, how you collect them, how you store them will either um, make the stigma problem worse uh, or help alleviate it. Um, you know, I, I can remember so many times opening a chart in a variety of EHRs and finding, you know, words like transsexual on a problem list. Um, so A, that's not a word that we use um, today in modern parlance. Um, and B, it's not a problem, right? Um, it, so, um, you know, uh, what's private, what's confidential, where do things get stored, all have tremendous implications for, I think, um, how do we incorporate these data in ways that are, are more or less stigmatizing? The issue that you bring up about the, even the words we use in the electronic health record, because as we learn more and more about important differentiating characteristics that aren't problems, maybe we also need to be thinking a lot about the terms that we're putting on the screen because of what that means. And of course, when you're sending a patient an after visit summary and there's a section that's called the problem list, how are they <laughs> interpreting it? That's something I'm going to have to look into a little bit. So yeah, some, uh, I would say it's something to ask uh, Trent because as we're thinking about the 21st Century Cures Act, the patients are starting to see these data um, in a more live format, uh, real time. 
And what, you know, I can't imagine being that patient, opening up my health portal and seeing that, you know, my provider put transsexual under their problem list. Uh, Man, what a, I I don't know, a discrimination lawsuit would be sitting right there waiting for it. I I mean, I guess, I don't know. Yeah, well, you mean, you mean I should take out colored from the description? I've thought about it. I mean, you might want to think about it just good, maybe in a week you. or two yeah i will jesse's crack for those of you who can't see jesse's cracking up right now his teeth are so white they're actually hurting my eyes <laughs> <laughs> um so so what's interesting is you start talking about what we're doing in precision medicine and and jesse through the book and through so much of what he's been you know really quite frankly preaching over the last plus you know decade plus people are now starting to catch up you know, and, and I think the combination of the, the documentary, transmilitary, and the book, and, and a lot of the testimony that you've provided and the clinics that you started has helped to create this awareness. So now we look at the data that's coming to researchers like you, Sarah, from the EHR. Do you see a difference? And if so, what do you see? Yeah, I mean, there is a difference because, uh, for example, I'm on the Emerge Network, and we're doing um, an Emerge what, for Emerge. Remind me what Emerge is. Yeah, Emerge is um, uh, electronic records, electronic medical records, and genomics. Um, I'm also on the Forest Study, and the acronyms are painful after a while. Yeah. Uh, and in Emerge, we are doing these genomic informed risk assessments, or JIRAs, another sweet acronym, and we're looking at people's monogenic risk, um, genetic risk, their polygenic risk score, their family history, and their clinical risk, um, and creating this assessment for different conditions. Um, And one of our issues that we have talked about with NHGRI and, and putting these together is that NHGRI really wants us to put together a cohort of underserved populations. And when they accepted proposals for that grant, uh, a lot of people considered, you know, African-Americans and Asians and um, Hispanics, but uh, one group did consider um, LGBT populations and there was some pushback for them to consider that. But uh, actually, I'm really impressed that they considered that group as an underserved population because we don't see them in in our research data. And so there are a lot of issues with being able to collect that data because it's just not there. It's small, um, small cohorts of information that just haven't been developed. Um, so I'm really excited to see Emerge for include LGBT populations. Well, it, you know, clearly, if it's not something that you see in the EHR data, they're probably not recognized and they probably yeah. are therefore underserved, given what Jesse's taught us about the guidelines that we're using for screening and vaccine, vaccinating, et cetera. Right, Jesse? I'll, I'll just share, um, I, you know, Kevin, I know you know this, I'm, I'm a combat veteran. I actually get most of my care at the VA um, by choice. I'm eligible and, and I, I've chosen to do that. Um, 89% of veterans' health records across the VA system have no data about sexual orientation or self-identified gender identity, 89%. Um, wow. But we know, um, that LGBTQ veterans experience higher rates of depression, more frequent thoughts of suicide, yet the VA can't analyze uh, who's at risk, who they should be doing outreach to based on sexual orientation generated because they just don't have those data. Um, not because they can't collect it, um, the fields are there, um, they just haven't systematized that, that process for, for a lot of, lot of reasons. So there's an obvious opportunity, there's a gap, 
uh, we can do better. Um, but a lot of those uh, fields are just missing today. But we have these terrific people doing natural language processing. We have portals. We have registrars. Why can't we extract the data from the EHR and populate fields like gender identity, recorded sex, name, pronouns? Yeah, we, we certainly could. I, I don't think it's a technical problem, Kevin. I think it's... Um, not, it's not even a political problem. I think it's a systemic issue um, about recognizing the priority and the value of undertaking those kinds of efforts. And um, you know, it's it's the same thing when uh, institutions were forced to by the by the federal government require uh, collection of race and ethnicity data. Um, it, it it wasn't a technical issue, right, to capture uh, fields in a dropdown. But it was a real big lift, as you described earlier in the podcast. Um, to do that effectively in ways that actually support a patient-centered care. Well, I, and I kind of set you up for that one because I'm looking at, there's this great paper that just came out in Jamia in um, the, a supplemental issue where we talked a bit about some of these issues. And one of the uh, authors of one of the papers, I think it was Robert McClure in the February edition of Jamia, talked about this um, ideal HL7 gender harmony logic model which has not yet been created, but that has five major elements. And the elements are gender identity, which I would argue our EHR never has because we never ask patients. Sex for clinical use. We might have it because that may be the one that they identify, but I think that's really a question of how that question's asked. Recorded sex or gender, we probably have. Although the problem is that many of our EHRs have dropdowns that don't provide enough choices. And so recording male when somebody is actually gender dysphoric, for example, is going to be wrong. Um, name to use, we have, although interestingly, we don't have it very well. And even pediatricians will tell you, we don't have multiple last name fields. And so children whose last name changes over time, we just replace one with the other, which means part of their record could be later suspect as not being the same child if we didn't already have additional other key information. And then pronouns. I guarantee you almost every record I've ever created up until about a year ago used whatever pronoun made sense for the name. I was actually shocked to find out that there were women named Bruce, you know, men named Sharon. And the fact that I could have easily heard somebody talk about one of those people and just made the assumption that I could substitute the pronoun is undoubtedly in their electronic health record. So I would argue that we actually can't do it even with NLP because the information we get might have you know, very good recall and precision, but terrible accuracy. Yeah, I know, and, and a challenge here is um, you know, the perspective continues to evolve with society and culture in terms of the words and the language. So. The words that we use today to um, describe gender identity um, are different, right, as a society than 20 years ago. So this concept of gender queer, being either exclusively male or female, um, non-binary, um, uh, words, um, you know, like two-spirit, um, don't show up in standards, right? They're not in USCDI. They're not in meaningful right. use, yet they're really important concepts um, and words that people use to describe their gender identity. Um, and yet we're, it's, we're sort of chasing 
concepts um, through standards to support the informatics component um, in a way that hasn't quite caught up. I think you're you're hitting a really great point there that we are we're trying to catch up. Um, one of the things that recently came up um, not or not that long ago was that we were doing a, a data refresh and we came up with a couple of people who um, in the EHR and their record were male but had pregnancy codes. Uh, our quality control would say kick them out. You know, it's probably a discrepancy, but it makes me think we probably didn't do enough due diligence to do a chart review to see if it was a trans male who was carrying a child, you know? Um, so I think, you know, we're constantly trying to chase after and catch up to what society is um, doing and not really thinking about that in our own bias. Well, you, you should go back and look because I know of at least one trans male who delivered and would be in your data set. There you go. Is there anything else in the electronic health record that is moving this quickly? Um, and have we been better? at staying on top of that particular sort of domain area than we have been around LGBTQI or SOGI status? I think there are things in the social determinant space that are moving quickly, but I don't know that we have caught up as well or solved any of those issues. So issues like um, um, housing status, uh, whether someone has secure um, housing or, mm. or not, um, mm. is widely recognized as an important determinant of health, health status, uh, and obviously um, might impact the kinds of therapies that you recommend. If somebody doesn't have a place to plug in a machine for you know, whatever treatment they need at home because they don't have a home, well, that's not really gonna work. And so I, I think that there are parallels um, in other spaces around you know, these data, around social determinants that um, still are, are in flux. And again, um, we're, playing, we're still playing catch up though. Yeah. You know, we learned a lot when when the coronavirus, when SARS-CoV-2 first came out, we learned quite a bit about the various ways in which those that disease and that organism were represented. You know, Wuhan virus, Chinese virus, coronavirus, COVID-19, some, some of which were interchangeable, but really shouldn't have been. Um, it'd be interesting to find out whether we as a field can come up with an approach that allows for an evolving knowledge base to be well represented. I used to always say one of the hardest problems in medicine is the disease that we haven't yet diagnosed. So the, if you could imagine going back to the chart now and trying to find out how HIV had been represented from sort of the earliest cases until the point where it was clearly HTLV3, right? Um, it was probably, it's probably hysterical meaning it's probably so difficult to find those patients and the ways in which they were characterized were so varying that it would be virtually impossible to do a real study of that without almost a manual chart review to identify it. And I wonder whether this is a similar problem and whether it should get the same kind of attention from those of us in informatics. How do we kind of, how do we represent evolving, you know, health issues? Well, and, and the other complicating factor um, is that how people represent themselves might change over time. Um, and uh, so, you know, these data may not be static. Um, and so the frequency with which they get updated is I think an open question that nobody's really um, solved. Um, there are different groups um, recommending different approaches to that. Um, but not only is the sort of cultural 
concept, uh, language evolving, but also in individuals, use of those words uh, may evolve over time too. So you've got um, a lot of things moving um, that aren't static, like, I don't know, my age. Yeah, or smoking. Uh, you know, Kevin, you mentioned that earlier. Uh, what someone might be as a, a smoker an avid sm or a smoker that, you know, they have a pack a day changes over time when they, you know, stop smoking. Um, we aren't very good with data that evolve over time. I, I see that in our research um, and what we deal with in precision medicine. Um, I also think about the, the privacy of it. I'm thinking uh, about the, t the Texas directive by Governor Abbott um, to consider uh, therapies for transgender kids to be child abuse. Um, how do we how do we deal with that? You know, when there's this new pressure coming from a state directive um, to ensure that we're collecting the data, but also protecting uh, patients and wanting and trying to get them to even to give that information to us. No, and it's interesting. You know, uh, I spent ten years uh, in the Navy um, as a physician, and part of that was in the "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" era. Um, and what's happening in Texas, Alabama, other places in the country um, oh, where these deeply disturbing laws are being passed um, that um, are unfortunately, I think, likely to come between patients and physicians in a, in a damaging sort of uh, way um, evokes back to you know, the situation that I think a lot of military physicians found themselves in um, where you know, they're trying to do the right thing for the patient in front of them um, which under, you know, don't ask, don't tell rules um, could be problematic from a documentation standpoint. Do you think there are people who are withholding information in the EHR that they know? Do we have any ways of knowing that that's happening? People meaning patients or people meaning clinicians? Clinicians, not... clinicians. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, um, they're, they're, well, and, and I think some of it is, is, is tacit, right? Um, I mean, there's, look, there's a lot of information that is shared with me by my patients um, that never gets entered. Um, some of it's irrelevant chit chatter. Some of it's probably um, just because of workflows. Others may be more intentional. Um, and you might expect to see more of that intentional um, drop off of data collection in places where um, it may come back to uh, be damaging to patients because of uh, these statutes that are being passed. You collect them elsewhere so that you can remember them? Uh, I, I see a sea of sticky notes, right, in my office, which uh, is a little <laughs> bit horrifying, but you can just imagine scenarios where, where those, starts, those things start, start to happen. Yeah, I, um, I can tell you that both of the major electronic health records have a shadow record built into the record, right? They both have reasons why their usual reason is because there's something I want to remember, but I don't want it to be in the chart. It would be things like I'm concerned about polypharmacy, which is when patients are on a lot of medications unnecessarily, rather than writing that, which is an incredibly judgmental statement to make, it's best to leave it as a note and then try to pursue it at some other time. And most of the present day EHRs have some capability to create these sort of tasks or other parts of the record that essentially disappear when they um, when you delete them. Most of the rest of the most most of the rest of the medical record does not disappear. It becomes a part of a discoverable record, but that one part doesn't. So that's that's a really big issue. Remembering that we have a group of people who listen, who are not in medicine. Are there questions that you think we should bring up that would be of use to them? Um, one of the studies, the the forest study that I'm on, which is about family history and cancer risk. 
uh, we were, we're recruiting 3,500 people to just help um, develop their family history information to see if it is helpful for us to have it before they come into clinic so that we can see if they um, have a cancer risk and it makes the, the visit a little bit more efficient. A lot of questions that we've had been, have been around privacy. Well, who are you sharing this information with? Um, where is it going? What is, what's happening with it after I get it and I share it with my provider? Um, we see a lot of the buzzwords that we've seen uh, around HIPAA and coronavirus come up. And so I just wonder if there's a way that we uh, in healthcare can become, uh, or we can explain that we're, we understand how delicate this information can be you know, and find ways to help people feel a little bit more open to sharing this information. You know, I, I think a, a foundational challenge for consumers is, is understanding what is truly private and what's not and what gets shared and, and what doesn't. And I think uh, particularly because consumer health apps and APIs and other things have um, uh, come into um the conversation from a privacy perspective in a way that actually muddles the water. So, so, so I think a lot of consumers and patients think uh, it's health data, HIPAA must protect it. Um, but if you're a consumer company, not a covered entity, HIPAA doesn't apply. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, there are probably ways that um, truly um, uh, that healthcare entities um, who abide by HIPAA um, can clarify that, you know, these data go here. Uh, these data get shared in this way. Um, that's probably going to be increasingly important, particularly um, as we enter into uh, an era of personalized medicine and genomics, uh, where there are profound implications if, you know, uh, my life insurance company suddenly has access to data that I might not um, want them to understand about my genetic risk profile, for, for example. This is such an important point. This whole issue of information sharing, I would wager most patients don't understand. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you, you, we talk about HIPAA and we talk about covered entities, which are a very specific population of businesses that typically are involved with treatment, um, often with the billing and otherwise other hospital operations. And that group that are, are sort of called covered entities are the ones that we primarily think about. But as you mentioned, Jesse, there are other corporations. There may be small mom and pop groups that are developing an app. And while they may have a notice of privacy practices, most people click through it. So they won't know that their, their data could be sold. At the same time, we in healthcare share data in ways that are magical, right? As you know, I'm one of the people who has been a big evangelist for health information exchange, but I've actually had at least one time where a patient was seen in an emergency department and that emergency department had access to data from a different hospital. And the patient was, was shocked, I think is probably the, the minimum phrase I could use, about the fact that it appeared that all of their privacy had been violated because somehow this doctor found out information from another hospital. And we had to let them know this was a part of the health information exchange. And then the next question was, I never gave you permission to do that. And of course the answer was, well, actually you did. Um, in one of the forms that we've asked you to fill out, probably our hospital notice of privacy practices, we said that we will share data for treatment payment and operations. And so, I think the patients who might be uncomfortable, to Jesse's point, um, saying that they are men who have sex with men might not have any idea that that information, if it's in a note, 
could show up now through 21st Century Cures in their inbox. It could also be exchanged with emergency departments and other people will use it mostly appropriately, but it might make them terrified. And I wonder whether there I wonder whether there's some education that we should do as we get into an era where more information is being externalized from the EHR about what information can be shared, how it's shared, and what responsibilities we have when we receive information that's come from outside entities. Yeah, and, and I would say um, I have the perspective that the federal government dropped the ball on this as they wrote some of these privacy protection rules around data exchange interoperability. Mm-hmm. Um, they could have put in stronger protections for consumers. Um, they could have allowed uh, a more you know menu of choices. You know, it's not all or nothing necessarily. Um, but if I want to withhold certain information, um, that could have been better elucidated. Um, but I think uh, right now, particularly as we think about, you know, um, just, just take a look at uh, what's coming in the consumer facing health AI space, right? You know, go to Google Derm, you know, they're, uh, they're AI enabled, you know, take a picture of your mole app that's available in Europe, not here in the US. Um, where, where's that data going? Google is not a covered entity. Um, and so how's that getting shared and tracked back, um, you know? unclear, but I think that there are, um, there's a place right now where if we got this right, it could be really helpful for consumers. I worry about how trust gets eroded over time. Um, if we don't do this globally, let alone with um, marginalized populations, including those who identify as LGBTQ+. Yeah, I think uh, we do have the onus of having to educate patients about this information because you know we all know it is easy to just scroll through and click accept or agree. Um, But I think, uh, Kevin, your example about not knowing what's shared is really poignant. I mean, especially with 21st Century Cures, I know that my health at Vanderbilt is sharing information with my Apple Health app. Do I know what it's sharing, how much stuff is being shared? Probably not, unless I sat there and dug through it. Would I understand the implications? And then who does Apple Health share that information with? I have no clue. So you know, I understand this stuff to a degree and I still can't give you all the answers. And so we're not going to have Apple that, you know, provides their information and, and educates people. It's going to have to be on the providers and um, on healthcare. I can guarantee you it's not being shared between Apple and Facebook. <laughs> That's about as far as I can type. No, it might Actually, be with Russia though. Um, you know, well, no, they, ba- they banned Facebook today. So that's right. There you go. Yes. I think, you know, in general, it's an impossible conversation to have. You know, I can't, there's, there, you know, I still can't get all the remotes in my house to work well. I still don't totally know how my Echo, I have to be careful not to say her name because she'll talk, um, but how these devices are listening for a wake word without storing everything else, right? I mean, I don't know. I can imagine, but I don't know. And I, and, and as um, I remember somebody interviewed Chris Rock about uh, the COVID vaccine. And his comment, which I thought was so poignant, was, I don't even know what's in my Tylenol. And yet I take them every single day, you know, when I have a headache. I think there's a lot of faith. And as Jesse put it, there's a lot of trust that we have that we think important information exists, like SOGI information. We are going to ask questions and you have to trust that wherever it goes, it was supposed to go there. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big leap. And there's, there's probably a different level of education uh, required around some of these concepts for why are we asking these questions for different populations based on you know, the answers. 
right? So, um, you know, I might want to know something different um, if I am with my son in a clinic um, as a gay dad um, about where information is going um, than, uh, you know, my colleague um, who isn't LGBT identified. Um, so that might be one way to think about it. You know, I, I, I always think about personalizing the education the information I give to all my patients uh, when I'm taking care of them yep. in pre-op in the operating room, um, you know, uh, depending on their needs, their interests, and what is going to be most, most relevant. Maybe that's a way to think about some of these privacy considerations um, too. Well, you know, one of the ways I can imagine, and maybe someone who's listening can think about doing this research, uh, we now have very good tools to read, to read charts. Um, we have technologies like the, the BERT technologies that actually develop language models that may help us to recognize that there's a certain pattern in the words that suggests, even without knowing the words, that there may be sensitive information there. And you wonder whether there's some way that we can start to put metadata around the note itself that says this note contains something that's sensitive. You know, sort of not quite like a nutrition label, not quite like a, um, a rating from a movie or music, but maybe it's close to that. And, and, and maybe that's enough that when we have that piece of metadata, we could send information back to families that says, you know, we appreciate you sharing the sensitive data that you shared that we saw in the note. You should know that we take special provisions to, to keep information like, you know, just some language that actually reflects the reality of healthcare. to your point, targeting people who have disclosed information and may feel uncomfortable having done so. I think that I love that idea. And I think that it would be nice if it could be led by a patient advocate group mm. who could say, this is something we consider as the as the patient or as the the client or however you else want to say it this is something we consider to be sensitive and would like for you to put the label on it i mean you know i so i've been coming through this issue of uh of identifying for myself who i am and have struggled with gender dysphoria and have slowly started to come out as non-binary and I disclosed that to my PCP, but I didn't do it through my portal. I did it through an email. And I did that intentionally uh, because I wanted, I didn't want it in my health record yet. Um, and I wanted her to be aware. So she knew why I stopped using birth control. Um, and I wanted just to, you know, inform her. And for her, she was like, okay. But uh, to me, it was really important. And so I didn't put it in a place that I knew would be going into the health record. Um, so I really think it would be interesting to see if patients would like to be a part of that conversation, help driving the build of that information and, and putting up a screen. I have oh. to tell you, I, I, I so don't want to say this, but it's just sitting at the tip of my tongue. I'm imagining us telling a doctor of a certain persuasion that they have, that you have, or somebody has gender dysphoria and them hearing gender euphoria and thinking, yeah. well, I'm glad you're happy about that. <laughs> I am happy about that. <laughs> I, um, uh, Jesse, you just mentioned something a second ago that I kind of want to go back to for the people who might not understand these health data or think about it, things in this way. You said, you know, uh, you might be thinking about something as a, a gay dad. Um, why is it important that maybe a provider know that you, uh, you are married to a man and, you know, what would what would be important for that information to um, a provider for your kid to have? Great question. Great question. Well, you know, um, I'm an anesthesiologist, so um, 
uh, contrary to popular belief, while my patients are asleep most of the time, they're with me, some of the most important interactions I have are while they're awake. Um, and me walking into the room, extending my hand to the person sitting in the corner who's accompanying them, and not assuming that it's a husband, a wife, uh, whatever, um, but asking, you know, who did you bring with you today is critical because understanding, you know, who is the family unit, who's in the support network and who's going to help this patient recover and how can we get them to the best possible outcome is informed by understanding uh, their sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, we can't do that in any context, surgical, primary care, whatever, uh, if we don't ask those questions um, and come into the door uh, without making assumptions. I think that's great and, and to hear. And I agree with you. I mean, you know, for me, my wife and I both participate in conversations with my son's health, um, with his therapist, but also with his PCP, um, because we live in a very rural area where, you know, there's a stigma about same-sex marriage. And we want uh, Bradley's doctor to know that, you know, he might have stress because he has parents um, who are the same gender. Um, you know, we've dealt with safety risks and uh, we've dealt with, you know, just the fact that he's adopted. And um, we know that there's a, a difference for him, um, not just for his um, mental health, but just his safety as well. And so we'd like for his doctors to know that. But I think that's something that a lot of people don't even consider to be important unless they've dealt with it. You know, that's a really important, this is a, a great conversation. I can tell you that somebody came to me about two months ago, and I know we have to finish. I'll just, uh, someone came to me about two months ago and said, how did Natalie handle it when she found out that you and Rob were a couple? And I said, you know, she was five, you know, really, it never really affected her. And he goes, are you sure? Because of course, you know, there's always the usual mental health issues that you can have. And any, anything that makes you feel different or stigmatized can make it worse, point one. But then he asked a very interesting question that I'd never even considered, which was, has it dawned on her that had you realized you were gay, she wouldn't have been born? And I went, you know, I've never even, I mean, you know, I could easily say, well, of course, if I had married somebody else, that could have been the case too. I mean, I, I don't really know what, but the more I thought about it, the more I actually decided I was going to ask her. And so I decided to ask her. I said, Natalie, somebody brought something up, and I'm just curious whether it's ever come up. And she said it had. Wow. She said it, a long time ago, she wondered about, you know, with the divorce. Um, and she thought about it more that way, which, which was, had it happened at a different time, she would have never been born. And yes, it did also occur to her that had I realized I was gay, it would have never happened. And that could be a reason. She, she tells me she never really internalized that as a consequential set of activities. And I believe that in Natalie's case. But it does bring up the fact that as a doctor, understanding that family dynamic may allow you to see some things that neither of the parents sees. Guys, it is, it's been a really great time talking about a topic that I think is incredibly sensitive. In all sincerity, I think a lot of people never have a chance to have three LGBT people talking with them candidly about an issue like this, both from the technology perspective, which of course is helpful, but also just from the you know life space issue. So I really appreciate you taking some time to talk about it. Thanks for having us, Kevin. All right. And that's a wrap. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. I hope you got as much out of that episode as I think we did. 
Look forward to joining you in about three weeks or so with the next episode of Informatics in the Round. Remember to follow me on at KBJohnsonMD on Twitter. Looking forward to catching up with you next time. Science, I'm loving it.